internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined today, as always, by our production manager extraordinaire, Erica Cantor. Hello. Say hello, Erica. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and our guest today is Lauren Bright Pacheco, and she is the host of the Murder in Oregon podcast from iHeartMedia. Lauren, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're, we're glad to have you on. And uh, it, it, it seems that I'm surprised that you even had time for us because you're kind of a big deal. You're like, an Emmy Award winner. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, it's kind of a dubious point of distinction because I come from daytime TV, and my former boss uh-huh. has now entered politics, which um, makes my Emmys either more impressive or less impressive, depending upon <laughs> oh. which side of the, of, the, of the fence you lean on. So, which uh, what did you win your Emmys for? Because you won, you've won three Emmys as a producer. Three as a daytime television producer on the Dr. Oz show. Oh, the, and Dr. Oz is now in politics. We'll just leave that, you know, Just leave over that here. in there. Just I, leave I, that. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure people have strong feelings on both sides of that. So we're just going to avoid it altogether. Um, <laughs> so you, you started, you, you spent that time working working on the Dr. Oz show, but you started your career in radio. What? Did, how did that work? What did you used to do in radio? So um, if you live in the tri-state area, you've probably heard of News Radio 88, um, and it's WCBS, and I started as a desk assistant there, and it was a great place to learn how to tell a story and the different ways in which stories are told. Um, So it was kind of baptism of fire and lots of true crime because it was in New York City. (laughs) Gotcha. I was going to ask you because um, my production manager didn't put it in the notes, um, which because you know people always say the tri-state area, but I've heard people call a lot of different places. The, like we're right where I live, people call the tri-state area because of Michigan, Illinois, and Indiana. Uh, so you are New York, so New Jersey, New York Bay, so New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Although, although there is some controversy. Over, I know, I know. They just, they just slip. <laughs> they're, they're entitled. Connecticut just claims, claims. Right. We probably have four listeners from Connecticut. For those of you from Connecticut, I'm sorry. But I don't see how the Connecticut gets lumped in with that group. So you started your started doing radio and news radio before. So how did you make the shift from that into producing the Dr. Oz show? So I had always written. And that's, that's how I went to graduate school for theatrical production. And um, then I came back and I was working in New York City, always writing and fell into radio, which led me into television, because it just made sense to kind of combine visuals with what I was doing in terms of audio. And that's actually served me pretty well in podcasting, because I like to say when I set out to tell a story, I want to kind of create a movie you can watch with your eyes closed. And and mm-hmm. so I bring a lot of the visual aesthetic to the audio that that I try to create for podcasts. I love podcasting. Yeah, 
Yeah, and you, you, you've you done great at it. One of them that I, I listened to a few years ago and actually uh, met and had drinks with her uh, in Austin, Texas, but you did the the Happy Face podcast uh, with uh, with Melissa Moore. With Melissa. Who was... Yeah, was the who is the daughter of the the smiley face killer, the serial killer? Uh, yeah, and I just by chance happened to run into Melissa, and we we had drinks, and um, I'm actually working on getting her on the show for one of her new projects. But so how how did you get? Was that through through the show? Because she that she was, was on Doctor Oz. Oz at one point. So yeah, um, she actually came on as a guest for the show. And ended up being a contributor. So I spent a great deal of time traveling around the country with Melissa in a car late at night. And we would Mm -hmm. just talk. And during that process, she shared her story uh, growing up with her father and how she's processed that. And so we became very close friends in that process. And so the podcast has that feeling of intimacy because it's legit. We we had those conversations in private long before we had them over a microphone. Right. So who decided to make a podcast out of it? It was something that um, the Dr. Oz show had a production company, and they were working at that time with the guys from um, uh, Atlanta-based company that ended up getting absorbed into – Mm-hmm. I heart. And so I was working with How Stuff Works before they came on board with I heart. But it was just a, a great staff. And Melissa and I really didn't know what we were doing when we set out. <laughs> um, and I think that that's, that's why it sounded so unusual for the time. Because we right. we were making it up as we went along, but we were definitely... We knew how to tell a story. We just hadn't done it in an audio format before. Yeah, and that came out great. I highly recommend Happy Face. And like I said, I've, I've been I've been chatting on Instagram with uh, with Melissa about bringing her her on to. She got some other products projects, and I want to bring her on to talk about Happy Face. Uh, but you also hosted uh, the podcast Murder in Illinois, which is the Christopher Vaughn case. How did so? How did that one come to be? That was it, it. Ended up being a very, very controversial um, podcast, I have to say. So, when you're working in true crime in that space, obviously you get a lot of pretty frightening content popping up in your feed. And mm-hmm. this was one of the stories, and I was drawn to it immediately because I'd never heard of it, and I pretty much, you know, uh, believed that I had heard of every single grisly crime that had happened in this country at that level. And this was a family annihilator case. It was an affluent family, a beautiful family. Um, and it didn't make the national level. It was it was a regional story. And the mm-hmm. more I dug into it, the more I realized it's because that story, um, that case unfolded in the same courthouse under the same state's attorney at the exact same time as the Drew Peterson trial. They actually happened okay. across the hallway from one another. And Drew Peterson just resonated more on a national level. And so people didn't really know about the Vaughn story. And that was actually unfortunate because the more questions I had about the story, the more red flags I discovered in terms of it possibly being a wrongful conviction. 
And that very much is where I've landed on the other side of what had been a two-year process. I got a lot of flack for that podcast, I have to tell you. Hmm. Um, because my... Yeah. Jordan. Join the club. <laughs> we can, we can <laughs> I, I got I got dog walked on on Twitter, um, but it was because it's very uncomfortable. I think for us to mm-hmm. even imagine that a mother could be capable of harming her children, even though it's something that we see unfold constantly in the news cycle, particularly today, but. When I initially was drawn to re-examine that story, it's because I had looked at the guy's mugshot and thought, God, what kind of a monster could do this to his wife and children? But there was something about that mugshot that resonated. And so I kind of lined up all the different years, and the guy looked so confused, just as confused as as I was as to why a person mm-hmm. would do that. And of course, because of social media, people took that as meaning it was an investigative journalists hunch but people wanted to right. believe that it was because i was madly in love with christopher vaughn and i was going to leave you know my husband of 25 years and our two children to you know become his next wife slash victim it was Jeez. ridiculous it was ridiculous God, that's that that's crazy it, it you know just working in the wrongful conviction space in general is difficult um, as far as it's, it seems like, you know, I've been doing on truth and justice for 12 seasons now and it, every single case every and then we've had a few of them where I'm like, well, this one is obvious. Everybody can agree. This is a wrongful conviction. And there's just always that splinter group that just are vicious on social media and just, and, and mm-hmm. you just can't read any comments at all. Cause well, yeah. A little tacky, so it turns into they disagree with you, so it must be because you're in love with him. Yeah, and and you know that's that that was a very interesting. I knew it was going to be polarizing because if you take on a family annihilator case and you question whether or not it was a rightful conviction, what you were doing is implying that it was a murder suicide. Um, and uh-huh. you know, I would I would double down on this one and say that everybody in the car that day was a victim including Kimberly, because she was on two different medications that anyone, either one individually had the capacity to alter her mind um, mm-hmm. to the point where she would have been in the state where she could have rationalized such actions. Um, but that, that it's, if you go and look on, on Apple, it's between one star and five star. Mm-hmm. Most disgusting vile podcast ever or or best podcast <laughs> yeah. ever. And a lot of it was because um, her family would not speak with me. And so even though uh-huh. throughout it, I, I said that we, you know, have reached out to them, but people felt that we were only presenting the side of Christopher Vaughn's family, but, you know, mm-hmm. they had never spoken publicly. And for the last 15 years, um, her family has had the support and the compassion of the public. And I think that if people were to look at it more closely, half as closely as I I have, they'd realize that both families deserve a lot of sympathy. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's a horrible case. It was the uh, Vaughn, Christopher Vaughn's wife and three children were all murdered. And he says he has no memory, no memory of doing it. Um, it, The story is I, I, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, but 
Uh, it's on my list. Anytime you tell me that all the reviews are one star or five star, that's right up my alley. Those <laughs> ones that okay, are, please, like and then and then give me give yeah. me a holler. We can we can talk about it over over yeah. a, a virtual pint. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I've, I've, I, the way I see it, if you're, if if everything's that polarizing, it means you're like you really took a swing. You know what I mean? You took a stand on the case. You did your investigative exactly. work, and and put there, it out there. there. there yeah. There's a lot of corruption on this one, and there continues mm-hmm. to be a lot of corruption on this one. And I, you know, I'm I'm a little bit ahead of the public on this one because I know what's happening behind the scenes as well. Right. And, um, you know, Vaughn, they claimed that there was dissociative amnesia, but that's because Vaughn was an unwilling um, participant in his own defense he lost everything, uh-huh. and I think that he was broken in the Will County prison. Mm-hmm. They held him for five years before he set foot in trial, wow. and they arrested this man the day of his family's funeral, the morning of the family's funeral, uh. in front of cameras, which is a perp walk of the highest order. Mm-hmm. And when you arrest mm-hmm. a man at his family's funeral and hold him for five years, there's no presumption of innocence no no that's i've always said that that's something that's that's like looks good on paper but you know when you go to trial yeah you shouldn't have to prove your innocence that's not your job it's the state's job to prove your guilt but that's what it says on paper but that's rarely the case for real life jurors that you know see the guy that was very publicly arrested and and held captive for that long that they just assume, well, they probably got the right guy and he needs to prove his innocence. And that's it's really difficult to prove a negative. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was just wondering like how I, I, I'm always curious how people handle the, the online negativity that comes with the kind of work that you do. Cause you, you went from news radio and then working behind the scenes on the, on a TV show to doing these pod podcasts, happy face was great. I assume you didn't get a lot of flack for that one, but then you come out and, and do this very controversial one, murder in Illinois. And all of a sudden you're just getting all this hate thrown at you. It obviously didn't deter you because you've now made murder in Oregon, uh, the great podcast we're going to talk about today. But how did you, did, did you have a moment there where you were like, okay, this isn't worth the bullshit that I have to take in order to do this. You know, I will say that, so it went happy face into murder in Oregon, into murder in Illinois. And murder in Oregon is pretty universally complimented, I I would say, appreciated. Mm -hmm. So um, I had, out of the gate, two really positive reactions to, to, Uh again, murder in Oregon has more twists and turns than, you know, a a bowl of spaghetti and also deals with corruption and a wrongful conviction. But this was different, particularly because it involved a mother and because it was a family annihilator case and because Mm -hmm. there was tunnel vision and they convicted Christopher Vaughn based on um, circumstantial evidence and character um, assassination. Uh, He had gone to strip clubs leading up to the in the weeks leading up to the murder and of course, mm-hmm. if a man goes to a strip club, he's fully capable of killing his entire family. That's, you know, a, right. a natural progression in terms of some of, of the listeners. And and honestly, the jury, because they took less than 50 minutes to convict them. And when people say, he was so guilty that it took less than 50 minutes to convict them, 
I think that's a red flag. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. think that you don't. And, and keep in mind that when they were trying this guy, the death penalty was on the table. And so mm-hmm. having uncovered the amount of misconduct we did, that's a frightening thing in and of itself, that he could be dead. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to listen to that one, too. I didn't realize they were in that order. Like I said, I hadn't listened to Murder in Illinois. I thought that was the old. So that's the, the one that you've done after Murder in Oregon. And and so to answer your question, um, it's difficult not to take personal attacks personally. Right. You know, if someone's telling you that, that, that you are um, only doing this podcast because you are planning to leave your husband and children for this, this, this man, that's that's easy to laugh off. But I also got messages wishing death on my children, oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Um, which is more difficult, particularly when people can Google you and put a face and figure mm-hmm. out where you live. Um, so right. I, I do take it. I take it seriously in terms of threats. But in terms of the process, I, I know my integrity and I know how seriously i take telling a story like this and taking on a story like this and i knew that it would be polarizing but i also knew there was a reason to do it and so that makes it easier to dismiss the insults yeah well if it makes you feel any better when i was doing the notes for bob for this week it was actually really hard to find any personal information about you or your family online so hopefully it makes you feel a little bit better (laughs) (laughs) that that actually helps very well at all i know i was (laughs) i struggled i struggled for sure (laughs) good i'll take it yeah people don't people don't see that though like what because it's you know like i've I've had many many times you know I, i haven't dealt so much with with threats, you know, against my family. But I mean, people say horrible things and make horrible accusations. I've been told that I should kill myself on multiple occasions by people. Um, yeah. And people don't realize that like if you're doing anything particularly in the wrongful conviction space, like those people are out there and it's, and it's hard to deal with. So, so that was your most recent one. Has it deterred you or you get, or, or do you already have another one in the barrel ready to go for the next one? I I'm, well, you'll laugh because I'm working on a great podcast right now called Murder in Miami. And it mm-hmm. looks at 1980s, early 1980s Miami, right as the mm-hmm. cocaine cowboys were coming into power and Miami was becoming the city that cocaine built. And it involves Phil Stamford, who is the journalist from Murder in Oregon, who really, you know, went to bat for frank gable and it ended up costing him his his job and over the years i've become a very close friend with phil and he Mm -hmm. would reference this time living in miami he had been a very high profile political writer had cover stories for the new york times magazine you know new yorker did talk of the town Mm -hmm. article about some of his cover stories and he just became disillusioned with the way in which things work, and he chucked it all and headed to Miami, and he wanted to become a detective, a private investigator, and he mm-hmm. ends up quitting journalism and taking a job with a, inter- a, a private detective firm called Intercept, only to learn that Intercept is staffed by all former intelligence and former CIA guys, and it is a front for a drug smuggling ring 
that is working with the understanding, he believes, of the government and the CIA. Wow. So you're jumping right (laughs) out of the frying pan into the fire. Yes. Now I'm going to be checking my car before I start it in the morning. It's... You've got more guts than me. I've had I have I've had Innocence Project um, networks that have like brought me cases they wanted help with that I have turned down because you know there was like one in particular was like involving like drug cartels out of Mexico. You know, it was like someone else was convicted, but they think it was people from this drug cartel, and they want me to and, and my audience to investigate. It. I'm like, you you know what? I'm I feel bad that person was wrongfully convicted, but. I don't need my tongue pulled out through my throat. It's like, I'm not touching it. Did you see SNL did a skit years ago about podcasting? Yes. And it was, it's so funny. So you know, perfect. just people knocking on doors of serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's been so much spoofing about that. You know, the uh, Only Murders yes. in the Building. I don't know yeah. if you watched that show with Steve Martin. Uh, that was just, the most recent season was about pocket. I actually just went to a few months ago to um, a comedian, John Mulaney. I went to his, his special in in Chicago to his performance and he's got a whole bit that he does at the beginning about true crime podcasters. And I'm, I'm <laughs> sitting next to my son, uh, my 17 year old son is watching the show with me and he's like, he got you dad. Like literally that's you. Everything <laughs> that he just made fun of you do. <laughs> Like why do true oh, crime podcasters to have set. to? Oh my god, it's hilarious. He's like, why do true crime podcasters have to tell you what they're doing? Like, so then I got in my car and I drove to. It's like, it's like no other genre does that except for us, you know. Um, I blame Sarah Koenig for that. Uh, yeah, she and so we're gonna get into you. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna get into murder in Oregon here. Just one sec. I just want to touch on briefly that um, you have you have quite a range between the. Dr. Oz stuff, the news radio, the the podcast, and then you also produce two other podcasts. One is called Holy Human with uh, Leanne Rhymes. Leanne Rhymes. Their music podcast and uh, Speed of Sound with Shh. Steve Greenberg. <laughs> and I love them both. I love them both. So, so um, Leanne Rhymes is more in the wellness space, and it is about personal growth and positivity. And I know okay. that sounds cliched. I know that sounds cheesy, but if you put your ears on this podcast, she is one of the most authentic people I have ever come across and one of the most talented as well. And she really just wants to pay it forward by Uh offering her listeners a glimpse into the world that she has access to in terms of self-healing. And it's a wonderful listen. She's a wonderful person. Steve awesome. Steve Greenberg and Speed of Sound, that is, if you like music, this isn't just a deep dive. Like you were going down to the deepest part of the ocean and you're coming back with, with uh-huh. a record. Steve, <laughs> I like to say, is like a human genome, like a Pandora. You can tell uh-huh. Steve your favorite s- song and he will explain to you why you would like 17 other songs <laughs> based on, you know, the yeah. writer. He knows and the what record label and... put it out, where it charted, all that stuff. It's 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 like a parlor trick. He, he's he's <laughs> he's brilliant. Listen to that. If you if you the best episode on that, in my opinion, but I also know the word to every single song, A side and B side of the Sugar Hill Gang Rapper's Delight. That's a really fun episode. He breaks down the the, the history of, of hip-hop. 
I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I'm all, is that kind of like your your palate cleanser to <laughs> to get away from the true crime stuff, doing the music podcast and the wellness podcast? You know, I would guess so. Right now I have one um as well that's called Symptomatic. It's a medical mystery podcast and we look into you know, half of people in this country, unfortunately, suffer from one chronic disease or another. And a lot of people mm-hmm. really struggle to get a diagnosis. For some mm-hmm. people, it can be years because a lot of these, particularly with chronic inflammation and pain, they're shapeshifters. They can be one of several different things. So that's that's one that's out now. <coughs> and that's cool. that's also a palate cleanser because it's more about <laughs> healing than solving. That's awesome. Is there a moment in your life that you're not producing or hosting a podcast? <laughs> when I'm doing laundry and unloading the dishwasher, <laughs> then I'm listening to other people. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. But you have to have, like, when you get all that negativity, you have to have something to do. Like, like well, and I, and I even, like, I even get shit about that. Like, I like, I'm a big outdoorsman and I'm like, I'll unplug for a week and go hike in the mountains in Montana yeah. and get and go hunting or whatever. They're like, Pff. Why are you taking a week off? Like we have to go a week without a podcast. It's like God damn, fuck you! You. Like, Somebody literally complained people. that you were taking too many vacations, and it's like, isn't that the goal in life to be able to take vacation? Yeah. <laughs> you need yeah, to I'm recharge. To you need to recharge. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, let's get into into murder in Oregon because this one I've been listening to, and it is it is fantastic. Uh, and it's all about who killed Michael Frankie. So, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about the podcast, what people can expect when they listen. And then let, let's, let's hear kind of the beats of the case. All right. So, um, I had interviewed Phil Stanford for happy face and he was the mm-hmm. guy who gave Keith Hunter Jesperson his moniker of the happy face killer. And when I first connected with Phil, he was so sick of talking to people that he had just gone off the grid. He was living in Gold Coast, Oregon, Uh which basically you can fall into the water if you go any further west. (laughs) And he was not interested in speaking about Keith Hunter Jesperson, who he believed was, you know, no Hannibal Lecter. And just a big dummy who who happened to get away with a lot of murders because he Mm -hmm. was transient. He was a long haul trucker. And so, you know, it's not as if he was expected to be in any one place. And that gave him a kind of cloak of anonymity with which to commit murder. He kept telling me about the Michael Frankie murder. And it is, it remains one of Oregon's most notorious unsolved mysteries. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll get more into that. But the guy who had been sitting in prison for nearly 30 years has pretty much been cleared. He it is it is almost unanimously agreed that he did not commit the murder. And it's also very interesting because Frank Gable, the guy who was convicted of killing Michael Frankie in 1989, has the complete support of Michael Frankie's brothers who have maintained his um, Frankie's and right. um, Frank Gable's innocence from the beginning. Um, but in 1989, the director of corrections in Oregon was murdered outside the building where he worked, the Dome Capitol in Salem. And this was the night before he was going to deliver a report about corruption within his own department. And 
It took them 14 months to make an arrest. They never found the murder um, weapon. And it was pinned on a low-level drug dealer named Frank Gable. And they rounded up the usual suspects of of, of people mm-hmm. whose testimony could be coerced and or bought. And that's it. They just had these um, eyewitness uh, and witness testimonies. They've all recanted. Um, there's no physical evidence that ever linked Frank Gable to the crime. And another guy had come forward and confessed but they didn't like the people that confession would have led to because there was also a lot of corruption within corrections right. at the time. So Frank Gable was rotting in prison and would have remained in prison had it not been for the support of Kevin Frankie and Pat Frankie, Michael Frankie's brothers, and Phil Stamford, the, the columnist from The Oregonian, who would not stop questioning um, whether or not they had the right person. Yeah. And he was, so, um, Michael Frankie was, he was stabbed to death outside of, outside of his office. And that was, and they, they, they came up right at the beginning that they thought it was just a, a, a burglary gone wrong, but he was, he was pretty a car, brutally a routine stabbed car burglary gone bad. Yes. And yeah. keep in mind that Michael Frankie was a former college football player, and he played competitive basketball on the side. He was in great shape, but he was also over 6'4". He was a gigantic man. And even if you are a meth um, head who is looking to break into cars, who would break into the car that's parked in the spot of the direction, you know, the head of, of, of... Director yeah. of Corrections, clearly marked. Um, and so that was the official story that Frank Gable, who is a very slight man, I mean, I, I outweighed him at the time, I'm sure, any, any day. Um, he was a slight man and that he had the force to stab Michael Frankie once through the heart. It just didn't make sense. Um, and again, they, there was no physical evidence that ever linked him. To the crime scene. What was what was the witness testimony that, that got him convicted? Because that's that's all they had, right? Was just witness testimony. Yes. So people claimed that they saw him there. People claimed that he confessed in prison. But every single person had an incentive, a very clear incentive, to blame it on Gable. And they also used. Um, lie detector tests, basically, as witness training. One of the young women who was a witness, Jody Swearingen, I think they gave her 19 different to test, tests, basically, to teach her to test. In other words, to, mm-hmm. to create uh, a version of the truth that they could use against Gable. And they've all recanted at this point. So, uh, Gable has maintained his innocence from the beginning. That has never wavered, nor has Kevin and Pat Frankie's belief in his innocence. And and this is kind of, um, Erica put that it is a companion podcast to the HBO show, HBO Max show, uh, The Murders at White House Farm, which I have not watched. That's this is a different one. So there is there is um, the murders at White House Farm is a different podcast. Crap. 
I've done, I've just done a lot of podcasts. I you have that. Yes, you have. Ladies and gentlemen, Erica Cantor uh, with the research. Man, I was really tired Listen, when I did these notes. <laughs> I think you're taking too many vacations because there's there's a lot of typos in here. It says it was a car I know, I just gone saw wrong. Those. I just saw those typos too, and I was hoping you would say notice. Oh my goodness, yeah. This well, good. Then I, I don't feel bad because I, I I listened to it and I'm like. They, seems like they would have mentioned. That's that why it I was, was confused when was I read that too. Because I was like, I think I was like, I think I watched part of that show before. And was, yes, and then I saw. So like, I saw it listed a few different ways when I was searching. Like some places did make it sound like it was its own podcast, but then I saw somewhere else that like it was like a uh, news article about this. One okay, and it now you, that. you're you're on to something because <laughs> good, thank because you. Murder in you Oregon. Bail her out yes, here, please. Lawrence. I'm drowning. Murder, Murder in Oregon was made into a cheesy movie, and that movie was the first starring vehicle for Angelina Jolie. And she played the young woman that I mentioned who was, you know, subjected to a relentless barrage of lie detector tests to kind of mold her testimony. That's who Angelina Jolie plays. And that was the 1995 film Without Evidence. That's the one. See, I got that's that one. Nailed that one, that Erica. One, yeah, yeah you <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> I do my best. Sometimes it's not that uh, great. <laughs> yeah. That, now that that didn't really get the ball rolling too much because so this this murder occurred in was it in eighty nine nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, and he wasn't. And that film came out in ninety five. Um, and he was just, he was, the judge overturned his conviction in 2019. What was the basis of the overturned conviction? Was it just the recanting testimonies? So at that point, by 2016, Frank Gable had exhausted every single possible avenue for appeal. And that's when uh-huh. a public defender named Nell Brown took a look at what he had put together. And it was pretty compelling And she was able to then go and interview all of the witnesses who recanted. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe every single one, but if not, you know, seven out of eight. And and also the fact that I mentioned that there was another person, Johnny Krause, who had admitted, confessed multiple times, and that was not allowed in the trial. And so, you know, he was not given um, a fair chance to defend himself. He also had pretty shoddy representation, I think it's fair to say. And so Mm -hmm. based on that, there was the 2019 ruling, which basically said he should be released and that the state of Oregon had 90 days to decide whether or not they were going to retry them. And Oregon appealed. And that led to the most recent um, verdict from the Ninth Circuit Court, which supported Judge Acosta's, affirmed his 2019 ruling. And so now, as things stand, they've decided that they're not going to appeal it again to the same court, but they have until December 29th, I believe, to decide if they're going to Mm -hmm. appeal it to the Supreme Court. And it would just be the utmost level of jackassery. I mean, mm-hmm. Oregon is punching air yeah. on this one. They have ruined a man's life. The brothers of the of the victim 
are are begging them to let this go. There, mm-hmm. There's no reason except they don't want to open the case again and they don't want to look at right. the people who it actually leads to. Right, and th- because it, it seems to lead right back to people involved in the prison corruption. It went all the way up to the then governor at the time, Neil Goldschmidt, mm-hmm. who was a pedophile. He had been in a long-term what that infuriates me, the Oregonian, the paper that Phil wrote for, referred to it as a relationship. When you have oh. um, a grown man and a child, I think she was 13 when it started. That's not a relationship, no. that's rape. Right. Yeah, 100%. Ugh, that's that's terrible. Well, luckily he's been out now for about three years. Of course, the nightmare is still not over. I'm sure he's just waiting for these appeals to be done. No, think about that. It's it's the worst kind of purgatory you can imagine right. because you can never get fully comfortable. He's already mm-hmm. said to, to to both Kevin and Pat Frankie, there's no way he's going back. Mm-hmm. He went through hell. I think Kevin Frankie's biggest fear during his entire incarceration was that he would die in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't for lack of trying that he didn't. Well, the case is is great. The podcast is amazing. It's full of, like you said, lots of twists and turns and way more detail than we've gotten into here in this this short interview. Her name is Lauren Bright Pacheco. The podcast is called Murder in Oregon. Uh, you can find it on iHeartMedia, and I assume everywhere else that you can download podcasts, you can find it? Yeah. any anywhere, anywhere you get the stories that matter to you, you can find it. That's right. So check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Been a pleasure meeting you too. I have something else I wanted to talk to you about though. Um, We don't have to, I mean, obviously, but um, it's another discussion for another day. But I think it's really interesting within the innocence community, the power that podcasts are having in in terms of just audio activism, Mm -hmm. but also because particularly with wrongful convictions, somebody knows something that could get somebody out of prison. And I think that podcasts provide such a platform for that, Mm -hmm. particularly in situations where someone's exhausted all other areas of appeal. It's a chance to retry it in the the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've seen it so many times over and over again, you know, Undisclosed has had multiple releases, you know, uh, Madeline Barron with In the Dark, uh, Truth in My Show, Truth and Justice. We've had, gosh, I think four out of our, our seasons now that people have been have been released in one way or another. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's provided an outlet for people to really look into these. And you know, what I said seven years ago seems to be, I've, I've heard this from police officers and, and prosecutors, you know, I said back then, you know, what would be great is if when new prosecutors are being and new police officers are being trained, if they told them, do your job, like some podcaster is going to pick it apart years later. And, you know, a friend of mine just, who has been a police officer for a long time, just went through um, detective school, you know, to get certified to be a detective. And he said, they literally told us like, do your job right. Cause someone's going <laughs> to, there, there's people out there in every basement in America with a microphone looking for a story to tell and it could be yours so not only do i think that the work that you're doing and and we're doing in this in this space matters and it, and that's evident by the fact that you know like innocence projects reach out to us mm-hmm. now to to help them with cases um but i'm hoping that it's it's really making a difference on the front end that we'll see 
you know, 30 years from now, there'll be there'll be less wrongful convictions to look back in the 2020s uh, that occur because these prosecutors hopefully are finally getting to be afraid to cheat and lie and be corrupt, at least some of them, because for years they went unchecked. 100 percent. And it's it's interesting. Two things. One, I was really proud of the fact that Murder in Oregon popped up in as a footnote in the ruling from yeah, you know the, the the most recent ruling, but also I was on the phone with Jason Flom this morning, who has the Wrongful Conviction podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know Jason. He's awesome, and we're we're constantly talking about. And we were just talking about uh, a case in Kentucky, and this guy has been rotting in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, and the guy who actually did it is now in prison again for another. But I, I looked and just quickly doing a search, I said, well, "Wait, this guy's five foot five, and the guy who did it is six foot." That in and of itself, you know, is something that you could go back right. to the whatever witnesses place this guy at the scene. Um, but that's just it. The more eyes on a story. And that mm-hmm. used to be something that journalists were doing. Mm-hmm. But right. in an era where everything's consolidating upon itself, there aren't there's just not the manpower and there's not the training Starting out in radio, yeah. you know, I had to ri- read, I, you know, I mentioned that I, I learned how to tell a story. That's because the news director made me read five different papers. Right. To understand all the different angles of one story. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this the other day. I was at breakfast with my dad and we were talking about something that was going on. And, and I was just saying that the news used to provide checks and balances to the people in power. We would get informed, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. So I, I am young and old enough to remember when you used to watch the news and that's how you found out what was going on and what people were doing right and what people were doing wrong. And now there's this weird tribalism, even within news to where everything is, there's a line drawn in the sand. You're they're, they're either for this team or for this team or for this party or for that party. And everything is skewed now. And the criminal justice system has never had the checks and balances that it should because it's all – it's an insider's game Mm -hmm. and they all protect each other. And and now we have outsiders coming in and and providing the checks and balances that the system so desperately needs. Uh, And – I think it's great. I wish, you know, I wish that what my buddy told me was true, that everybody was was on – every single – questionable conviction was being talked about on a podcast that people were were learning about because it's 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 genuinely making a difference. Yeah, and that's that's my biggest regret. You know, as 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 busy as I am, I wish I had I wish I had the time and I wish I had the bandwidth mm-hmm. to really take there's no shortage of these stories. No. And and no, and and, and, and they're all injustice is heartbreaking any way you slice it. Um, and, and, yeah. and I know that it makes us all deeply uncomfortable to know how commonplace it is because it makes us question everything we hold dear, you know, in terms of the system yeah. that's supposed to protect us. God help you if you are on the wrong side mm-hmm. of, of the law <clears throat> um, if tunnel vision is, is involved. Yeah, I've, I've Once found that myself, machine yeah. – Yeah, I've found myself getting, you know – more and more afraid of that the more we talk about and learn about all these wrongful convictions and i'm a white cis female like i'm not you know typically the um take demographic that's taken advantage of but it can happen to anybody 
And it's that's scary to yeah. think about. It really can. Well, luckily, there's people like Lauren out there telling the stories and bringing them to everybody's <laughs> ear and all you and and all like you, you out and there. like you <laughs> all you listeners out there got a little bit of bonus about the wrongful conviction uh, community and podcasting there uh, and with that we'll go ahead and and wrap things up but Lauren again thank you so much for joining me the podcast is great again it's called murder in Oregon and her name is Lauren bright Pacheco thanks again thank you so much Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com and episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.